0: Welcome to my podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? With my guests, we are discussing health issues, questions you may have, and debunking some of the myths around our health. As part of my mini-series of four podcasts in a row on menopause leading up to World Menopause Month in October, today I'm talking to Professor Isaac Manyonda. And his title is Menopause and HRT, medicalizing a natural transition, or addressing a vast unmet need in women's health. This is a very, very hot topic, especially in the UK. So, and I know that Isaac and I don't agree on everything, so it's going to be, hopefully, a really good discussion. So a little bit about Isaac. He has recently retired from being a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist at St. George's University Hospital in London. There, he carried out specialized treatments for recurrent miscarriage, fibroid disease, menopause, menopause access surgery, and high-risk obstetrics. He was instrumental in establishing the first and still one of the few cutting-edge dedicated centers for research and treatment of fibroid disease, and was the lead author on a recent major national trial on myomectomy versus uterine artery embolism, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And he has published more than 250 publications in the top peer-reviewed journals, such as Nature, the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, etc. And he's also published four books. So very welcome to you, Isaac.
1: Joyce, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, as you say... We have slight differences of opinion in certain areas on the menopause. So let's go for it.
0: <laughs> yes, I don't want my podcast to be everyone who agrees with me. I think that would be really boring. And as a scientist, <laughs> we we need to hear other people's views and we need to give everyone a platform. And people need to listen and take in information and make up their own mind. So that's what we're going to do today. But before we get to the that's menopause... Funny. Before we get to the menopause, I really like hearing about my guests' careers and yours is hugely Mm -hmm. impressive. So I'd love to know, why did you want to become a doctor and why specifically an obstetrician and gynecologist?
1: Well, why I wanted to be a doctor first of all was I just couldn't think of anything else when I was doing my O-levels, my A-levels. Couldn't think of anything but medicine. And I can't give you a precise reason for choosing medicine, other than the fact that I thought this would be a very, very uh, challenging um, career, which would also perhaps let me do something that was good for human. Even at that age, I did think like that. I think, uh, but why ops and gynae was because this was a subspecialty or a specialty in medicine that allowed you to be a surgeon and a physician and a scientist. So you operate. Uh, this is gynecology, and this is why I did a lot of fibroid surgery and enjoyed it immensely. You uh, you help bring new life into the world. Delivering babies is really actually very exciting until you get to a certain age, and you don't want to wake up at 3 a.m. But until you reach that age, the whole thing about obstetrics is very exciting. But it also um, allows you to be a scientist because um, it it means that you can research into some of the most fundamental questions, such as how life comes about. I mean, I think there are very few questions that are as important as that. And even when you think about what we're going to discuss this afternoon Everything comes back to the creation of life. And to be able to understand the progression, to be able to look after women when they're pregnant, to be able to help the babies come into the world. Now, that was very, very, very attractive. And finally, um, the research bit, what was particularly interesting for me was the idea of um, the development of a foreign. Uh, a foreign being, in another being, the immunology of that interaction. So one of the books I've written was on the uh, immunology of human reproduction. And uh, you can see where the interest has come in. So that is the answer to your question.
0: Thank you. And, And before we came on, we were talking about the NHS. And yesterday there was an announcement on the radio, that there were more people waiting for NHS appointments than ever before, and um, if if we try, if people try to go private, if they have the money to go private, the waiting list now on the private medicine is is huge. And um, I just wanted you to share your views about how where where we where are we going with the NHS?
1: You know, I I'm not one to believe in conspiracy theories in a big way, but I fear the NHS is being undermined in a big way. And I think the aim or the strategy is to create an almost completely private health service. I know that is just an opinion that I have, but a lot of things that are happening are pointing towards that, I don't really believe that the waiting list needs to be as long as they are. I don't believe that the shortages that we see are real. I think that there may well be an agenda behind all of this. Yes, Joyce, I, I, we have I been I, cut off.
0: Oh, no, I can hear you. <laughs> We're fine. We just have a little, always a little the, lag yes, on these podcasts.
1: I'm, Okay, we we can I can carry on. It's just like I can't see you now, and no, as don't long mind. as you're happy with that, uh, yes, I'm I, still here. Uh, uh, I'm yeah, not, but <laughs>
0: yeah. Ca- carry on, feel free. Okay. Carry
1: on. So, 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 what I'm saying is that um, I think that there the is an agenda to move to largely private care, and that this wonderful NHS that many of us believe in will not be there tomorrow. And that is a crying shame. And you see it not only in the way it is being funded, not only in the way, but also in the way it is being led. The NHS leadership, the non-clinical leadership at this moment in time, do not share the agenda of their clinical counterparts. And that means that their priorities are not the same. And therefore, at the end of the day, the wonderful NHS that we hoped would always be there may not be in five years, but that's just a view i hope
0: yeah i've I've never shared my view publicly, but my view is is the same. I think the agenda' has been to break break it, so it's not functional, so we're having these long waiting there's so many people waiting, and then it's already forced some people who can afford it to go private, but then the agenda will be, well, it's, it's broken. So it's so broken. We should just abolish it, which which, again, I I totally agree with you. It's a, it's a crying shame. Um, I I actually had an appointment for a minor, a minor uh, procedure on a minor test uh, yesterday. And um, I was in and out within five minutes (laughs) I, I was I was uh, called exactly the right time and I was it was a scan and I was out within five minutes and I was I tweeted about it. I said like, oh it does sometimes work so I think there are some people that are, are right. keeping it working but yeah it generally it's yeah and uh so let, let's go on to the menopause.
1: Sorry, yeah, carry on. I was going to say before we go, it's just that those people who are working very hard to make it work as you um uh witness yesterday. They're not necessarily aware of the bigger picture, the big agenda that we have just been talking about. And maybe people like you and I should look at ways in which we should highlight this. Because if we are wrong and there is no agenda to get rid of it, we have at least protected it, if you see what I mean. I don't think we're wrong, you see, and that's the problem. And that's why we've got to find some ways of really bringing it out that this is what's going on everybody wake up and let's protect it the menopause
0: <laughs> yeah i agree see. with you about the nhs so we've we've got off to a good start with with something we agree <laughs> on so yeah the menopause <laughs> <laughs> the menopause which is an area that's been heavily privatized so it seems that in in many countries especially in the uk we have become very muddled about the correct information about menopause and so today we're get, we're going to hear your views on this and I'm going to start with something not too controversial and I, I interviewed uh, Professor Susan Davis uh, last week and I'm going to ask you many of the same questions um, th- then we can see what we agree on and what people don't agree on and, and we have to take everyone's point of view for sure. Um, so a simple one, but um, Susan said it wasn't actually that simple. Um, in your view, what, what is the definition of perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause? How would you define them?
1: Well, well actually, it is simple. And let, is, let us keep it simple. Because we say a woman is menopausal if, on a natural basis, She has not had a period for a 12 months. If there's no other pathology, she's otherwise healthy, she's just of a particular age, and her periods stop and they have stopped for a year. That lady is menopausal. Perimenopause is that period of time in a woman's life when she is knocking on the door of the men, leading towards the cessation of her menstruation. So she begins to have symptoms that typically culminate in the menses stopping altogether. So in the perimenopause, a, a woman might start experiencing some of her flashes and sweats. She may feel that she's no longer as energetic as she once was. She may feel that her hair uh, falls much, uh, much more easily when she shampoos it. She needs a lot more cream for her dry skin, et cetera, et cetera. We could go into many other symptoms that people don't recognize as being menopausal. So those are symptoms of the perimenopause. She is knocking on the door of the menopause. Post-menopause is really um, a non-starter as a definition, because it simply means a woman is menopausal and she is menopausal and beyond. I really has no particular I would always talk in terms of perimenopause or menopause. Okay. That's my
0: definition. Uh, okay. So um yeah I would always say that once a woman's stopped her periods for 12 months she is postmenopausal. So would you not say that?
1: Yes. Menopause, postmen postmenopause. Postmenopause. Yeah. Post-menopausal, yeah. But it's, and I think when you say post because you you, 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 My, my, my quarrel with that use of the term "post" uh, is it looks as if there's a point when you're menopause and then you're post-menopause, and that's because that creates an unnecessary confusion. A woman yeah. is perimenopausal, leading into the menopause of uh, transition, and then she remains in the menopause.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the symptoms. So um, Susan said that in her view as an endocrinologist, the first symptom would be a change in periods. Um, but I've, I've spoken to many women. That's one thing I didn't agree with her on. I've spoken to many women and they have had hot flushes and other symptoms before their periods changed. So how do you feel about that? And, and let's talk more about the symptoms. So how would you define the, the main symptoms that are due to the perimenopause and not due to just the ageing process for women. Yeah.
1: So it's a mistake to think that this particular symptom is the first, followed by that, followed by this, and so forth. I hear you and I are in agreement, uh, and against uh, perhaps Susan, in that some women will start with hot flashes, or just a sensation of heat in the body, or feeling very hot at night, the night sweats where they're throwing off the sheets and then feeling cold and bringing them back on and forth and and back and forth and back and forth. Yes, some women will notice a change in their menstrual pattern. And then this can go back to normal for quite a number of months. And sometimes it is due to the perimenopause, and sometimes it may not be. And other women will notice the usual things like their skin is drier. They need a bit more cream to uh, keep their skin moist. Their hair, as I said earlier, becomes thinner and drier. And when they shampoo, it falls much more readily. They may notice that their nails are lined and they break easily. Their energy levels are probably Uh, declining a little bit. They're not as energetic as they were once before, but then they will say, well, maybe I'm just getting old. But actually, that is very much part of the the perimenopausal um, uh, picture. And other women will notice that their emotions, their moods change. So they may find that they are less tolerant of other people. They will snap where previously they would have let it pass. They will Sit, watch a movie, and have a little cry for the most innocuous little something they watch on television. And uh, I mean, there, there are many. Do you want me to carry on? Because there, are, there, are, there are very, very many symptoms that, and and uh, that people may not Let recognize as being linked to menopause. But, but, others include the fact that they may find that um, they, they, they're not as sharp in terms of their memory as they used to be, not as able to be focused and concentrate as well as they used to. They may find that the their confidence, the confidence they once exuded is no longer quite the same. And others will say, well, I am experiencing a lot of muscle aches. I'm experiencing a lot of joint pains. Um, and, and these are very much vaginal dryness is a feature for some women. And for others, it's not just dryness, but then they also lose interest. Their libido uh, is reduced uh, or declines in the menopause. And again, it's very easy for people to say to themselves, well, is I've been in this relationship for X number of years and maybe, yeah, I'm just seem to be bored. And it's it's, but actually, is part and parcel of the changes that happen as a result of the hormonal changes that accompany the uh, perimenopause and subsequent menopause.
0: Let, let's pick one controversial and then we one. we do lots other
1: things like. But... Okay.
0: Sorry. Okay. Let's let, let's pick a. Con- sorry, we got a yeah. bit of a lag. Let, let's pick a controversial one. Let's pick weight gain. Um, I I wrote in my book. Mm a few years ago, that that I thought weight gain, because I'd read so many people say weight gain was linked to perimenopause. But since then, I've looked at the data a little bit more and read more and listened to other people and learned that men at the same age actually gain more weight than women. And it's probably more to do with aging than to do with the perimenopause. But what do you think about weight gain?
1: Yes, I think the so-called middle-age spread that afflicts both men and women is a reality. The mechanisms are probably multifactorial. There are several things that contribute to this. And I think to say it's simply perimenopausal is incorrect, To say it's purely aging is vague because you don't know really what you're saying when you say it's an aging process because, of course, the perimenopause is part of an aging process. Um, But what I think in terms of women um, at this particular age putting on weight is that I have already said that one of the symptoms is that the energy levels are decreased. So, if your energy levels are decreased, you are exercising less, you are burning calories less, and you are going to put on weight. How does that uh, compare to men? Well, in a funny kind of way, it does also. They are exercising less. But what's driving that may be subtly different. So, the hormonal milieu, the change in the hormonal milieu in women um, may be a very important factor in their reduction in activity and therefore in their putting on weight for men it may be slightly different um and and, and it may simply that we be that we don't understand the uh, subtle hormonal changes that account for the men putting on weight and having their stomachs uh, hang out a little bit more than they would like them to but certainly um the weaking happens in both sexes
0: thank you and um in in your view is there a test for the menopause so uh this week we heard that uh clearblue have uh, produced a test that they're going to take into account some symptoms but they're going to measure um one of the main hormones follicle stimulating hormone fsh uh, a few times um to give women a menopause test so do you, what do you think i know the british menopause society does not recommend a, a menopause test so if we've got a 48 year old woman would you would you do a test for her for the perimenopause
1: uh no i think that it is actually a waste of time and resource because what is much more important for any woman are the symptoms or symptom complex that she has. the actual follicle stimulating hormone levels fluctuate so much in the perimenopause that even if you do a few of them, uh, you may still end up at the wrong point. so we say the raised raised levels of Follicle stimulating hormone may be uh, indicative of the menopause, but they would, of the perimenopause, but they wouldn't definitively uh, um, tell us that that is the case. In other words, it is much more the symptom complex uh, that is indicative of the perimenopause. And I see, in any case, we wouldn't treat the level if we needed to treat. We wouldn't treat on the basis of the level of the follicle-stimulating hormone. We would treat on the basis of the symptoms that the patient presents with. So somebody might have, pretty much when we do a measurement or two measurements or three measurements, follicle-stimulating hormone levels that are within what we consider to be pre-menopausal. But she may have a lot of symptoms and require help. And the reverse may also be true. High fsH levels, but minimal symptoms and not requiring any intervention of any kind
0: We agree on lots of things, Isaac <laughs> 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 so um that leads us nicely on um from what you've said already i am I think that you I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you feel that all women are different, they're all individual. And from what you said, they may have symptoms, they may have lots of symptoms, little symptoms. So I've always felt that women are very individual and therefore need individual treatment. So uh, one controversial question is that we see some doctors say that the, and we've had a discussion, we've had a debate about this (laughs) and you had the opposite view to me, that (laughs) that menopause is a disease or a disorder. So um, in the debate, I was speaking, uh, saying it wasn't, um, and you were saying it was, but um, now we're not in a debate. So do you feel that for all women, the menopause is a disease or a disorder?
1: Um, I think that for all women, the menopause is a phase in their lives through which they go if they live long enough. So if every woman lives long enough for her, she will become menopause. For that reason, it's not a disease. It's just part of the natural life cycle. But that natural life cycle can bring with it symptoms and signs or illnesses that require treatment so it's not a disease but it can be associated with symptoms and signs for which women need help support guidance treatment
0: so following on from that do you do you feel that all women should be taking hormone treatment or do you think only women that have symptoms that are affecting their life Uh, Their well being should be taking hormone treatment.
1: On on the face of it, my quick, ready fire answer is no, no, not all women require treatment. And only those that have symptoms that are bothering them need to be treated. But I say my ready fire uh, uh, response because beneath it all, though, I do have this feeling that the menopause does bring with it a number of issues in women's health that perhaps if we had a way of addressing them we would significantly improve women's health because we do know that certain potentially life-changing events can be linked To the menopausal transition. We do know that things like uh, the bones becoming more brittle and exposing women to the risk of fracture. The immune system becoming a little bit more compromised and therefore women being more prone to viruses and other things they may not have been prone to. The cardiovascular system, we do there is good evidence that suggests that um, treating women with hormone replacement may protect them. Now, that still does not add to the idea that all women should be treated. But what it does for me is it says we should keep a lot of our women under surveillance. So we should find some way of thinking this particular woman should be Uh, assessed for her bone mass, for example, to see if she is becoming osteoporotic. In the same way as we say, every woman over the age of 50 should have a mammogram so that we pick up breast cancer, hopefully, before it becomes... I think that if we could identify a particular group of women that should be screened for osteoporosis, what women are these? Well, uh, this is not comprehensive, but... Women who are on the very skinny side, or slim side, I should say, or women who, where there's a family history of osteoporosis, um, or women who have had some kind of fracture, all of these should be offered screening, just as an example. And I happen to think that um, as, soci- as a society, we are a little, mis- a little bit misguided when we don't see the potential for... Uh, hormone replacement in relation to women's overall health. That still doesn't mean every woman should be given HRT because there are women who, are, who have the rudest of health in their perimenopausal and, and menopausal years. And why would you want to treat them? But many women do have symptoms that could benefit from treatment. And many women would benefit immensely in their overall health if they are at least given the option if they want it. See, here's my view. You said the question. The question was, I think you said, should all women be, be, be treated? No, I think the most powerful thing we can do is to educate women so that they can make the choice with our help, with or without our help, as to whether or not they have treatment. I think... Uh, if women could be given the information about the implications of the menopause, some of the symptoms and signs that they might have that they didn't realize are linked to the menopause, what is available, what interventions are there for them out there, and that these interventions are readily accessible to them without giving them much in the way of side effects or complications. It's knowledge, it's education that I think is the most powerful thing that women need, and that these that that women should be able to participate in decision making about their health.
0: I am. Um, thank you. I <clears throat> I have been doing a lot of work around um, well being, and <clears throat> sorry. Um, there's a brilliant series on Netflix at the moment called Blue Zones where they've looked at areas of the planet that have excellent longevity and they have excellent health and they have very low rates of they didn't speak about osteoporosis but they talked about dementia heart disease diabetes and um uh, cancer and in these areas the these these long term diseases are very very low and I have asked the the guy that um, presents and and wrote the book on the series um, and who's doing this research um, whether the women were on hormone treatment. And I'm I'm not sure. I I think it's highly unlikely. These are often quite remote areas with very little, to be honest, medical intervention. But they're leading very healthy lives. So they are exercising. They are eating well. They have a sense of community. They sleep well. They're doing a lot of work outside and gardening and exercise outside. And um, I feel we, I wanted to ask you about dementia as well, but I, I feel that um, I, I do a lot of work on fertility and with fertility as well. We have these areas, these times of a woman's life where, um, oh, I'm trying to get pregnant. Oh, I better look after my nutrition and exercise and sleep and well being. Oh, I'm perimenopausal. Oh, I should look after these. And what what many of us are trying to say is, if we look after those all of the time, as we see in these uh, these blue zones around the planet, and we this will also help us with our menstrual health. It will help us with all of the key milestones in our reproductive life. Um, so, I feel we the education for me needs to to be okay. Let's Let's number one, let's look after our well being. And I really believe that for some women, not all women for sure, some women with symptoms, if they are spending more time on their self and looking after themselves, um, I think that would really reduce their chance of many of these symptoms and the longer term problems, um, including dementia. All, all the things I've read about dementia are, you know, if we look after our well being. All our life, we really reduce our chance, but it's never too it's never too late. So the menopause is like a wake up call, um, and we just don't do enough about that. So, um, absolutely, feel that there are some women that they'll tick every box and be living a wonderfully healthy life, and they'll still have symptoms, and they'll they will need and they will benefit from hormone therapy for sure. So, do do you think we do enough with well being of women? Um, before we actually give them any treatment. How do you feel women are looking after themselves?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that those women who come with significant symptoms, perhaps you could argue the horse has bolted and you can't say change your lifestyle in a significant way that would necessarily make your symptoms go away. I mean, I know that... Joyce Harper likes to go swimming and skinny dipping for her for any sort of uh, hot flushes and so forth. But I'm not sure that in the longer term, or for the majority of women, that would work. Um, the 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 thing is is that for those natural for those interventions that you are alluding to to work, they're a lifetime lifestyle. So you couldn't use those at the point of the menopause or perimenopause and make a huge difference. Even um, so, so if you look at the areas where this research has been done for um, women where they live long, where they have healthy long lives, um, uh, perhaps be places like Japan or something like that, or some of the more remote areas really you look at their environment and you recognize that there are aspects of it that make it possible, that it may not be possible to apply that kind of um, uh, environment and existence to right across to benefit all of women. So, for example, again, going back to Japan, you look at their diets. Their diets are full of uh, natural estrogens. And this may be Part of why they are so much better for so much longer. I am not saying that is a single important answer, but I'm saying it could be a contributory. One of the most important things is that these people doing this research should try and isolate the key factors that retain, maintain, sustain these women's health. Um, so going back, coming back closer to home and looking also at the issue of dementia i mean we have to um really um look into the issue as to why dementia now has become the biggest killer in women bigger than cardiovascular disease um there's something going on there's something in the world i don't know what it is i don't think anyone know knows fully what it is Does HRT help? Does it make things worse? Very important questions to ask. If you are one way inclined, you might look up and come up with a lot of evidence from uh, epidemiological studies, from uh, uh, test tube studies, from uh, mouse studies, from Even now, human studies suggesting that HRT or estrogen and and other related molecules could be helpful in preventing. But if you belong to the other school, you could equally find evidence that might suggest the the very opposite same condition, same population, but you're arriving at different conclusions. Point being that this area is dying for good research, good scientists so go out there for it Joyce I would say I'm very happy always to be Uh, I'll do your uh, pulling out papers and so forth but no seriously, seriously um, there is a need for the proper research to be done um, in this area of dementia because it's just so common now Uh, or in trying to see whether aspects of treatment um, could actually benefit women. Maybe we'll come to this. Um, because I'd like us to discuss, if possible, you're, you know, you take the lead here, but um, we could perhaps discuss testosterone, for example. and um, Because I'd like to say a few things about that in relation to what should, how we should be looking at it in terms of whether it's beneficial or not for women. So oh. We'll just
0: we'll just finish we'll we'll finish a bit about dementia and about heart disease. So I've I've read all the main clinical studies on dementia <clears throat> sorry in a lot of detail and um there there are a lot of studies. Um do we do more studies? I don't know, but we, we do have a lot of studies, and in my view, yes, there are a few that say there may be a benefit, but um I think they have more problems with their design than those who are saying that there is is no benefit and some saying it makes it worse and there are differences in the type of treatment the women are being given and the women themselves etc so my view absolutely is that there is no evidence that taking hormone therapy will reduce dementia at this moment in time and and the heart disease i think there are certain women who are at high risk there are things we can do to monitor our risk of heart disease but um i i i one thing i don't agree with you i do think it's never too late to take a, make a change of our lifestyle so Many women tell me they don't have the time to exercise. They don't have the time to prepare meals properly. So they eat fast food. And I think education um, is so key. And then I think that it is in a way lucky for women that we have this menopause to go through, which gives us a wake up call. You know, we may have these symptoms along the way. It's like, look at these. Um, there's options that you can do but i think it's never too late to look after our long term health yes if we are looking after our well being from a young age we definitely reduce our chances um my mother and all my aunties several many of them got dementia um and so far touch wood, none of the grandchildren none of their none of their children um have got dementia because we're leading very different lives um, probably was a genetic risk, but probably the environment paid, played a lot with that. So, um, we'll get on to testosterone in, in one second, because I did ask Susan a lot about this. This is her speciality. She's doing lots of research, but do, do you think that hormone therapy and you, people may notice I haven't called it HRT as I discussed with Susan in Australia and many countries, it's called menopause hormone therapy and we don't feel it's a replacement. And in the US, it's normally just called HT or hormone therapy. So I'm trying to get used to getting away from HRT, which many people feel is is not really accurate. But do you think hormone therapy is a drug? Is it actually a drug that we're giving women, whether it's testosterone, estrogen, all of them, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, or just estrogen? Are these drugs?
1: No, no, they, 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 they are. Some of them are drugs. Some of them, well, it depends on how we want to define a drug. But but, Joyce, I can't not just make a quick response to some of the comments you made about dementia. Um, a lot of clinical studies have been, have been done. But fundamentally, most of them, you could sit down and shred them. Because really, the design leaves so much to be desired. It's not true. And the fundamental mistakes have been made time and time again in a lot of those clinical studies. And I don't want to make claims for the benefit of hormone therapy, nor do I want to say those studies that found that it makes things worse. Uh, But, you know, let me just point to one thing. There is no doubt that if you look at the centre of the body, where the disease of the dementia is the hippocampus, and you look at estrogen receptors in the brains of women who are, have dementia, that the estrogen receptors are significantly uh, are, are reduced. That if you give women, if women who are on HRT from the perimenopause, that they are, the, 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 the amount of estrogen receptors within the hippocampus is different, is better, is higher, and that. Um, the there is a distinct possibility that estrogen may, may, work, may work make a difference to the receptor levels within the hippocampus, which is the site of uh, the disease. Now, it's not a proof that um, hormone therapy makes a difference, but it is suggesting that there is a link. And which way the link goes um, would, to my way of interpreting it, uh, is it's, it's it's more points towards a benefit rather than um, a, a negative But that's just um, and also um use point to your um your, your your grandparents and past parents before uh, dementia has become more frequent than in the time of your grandparents and parents before now that you are and your siblings and your, Generation are less affected um, is much more to do with you're still too young, and that we don't know what will happen. You touch wood, and I hope you know it doesn't. You don't get involved. You don't get affected by this. And it is true to say that there may there is a genetic component, but how much of the genetic component and how much of the environmental issues are important, we still don't know yet. And the very fact that um, uh, remember that the generations before, in a sense, aged much quicker in terms of their physical deterioration than you guys do at this one time. So we can't be sure. And cardiovascular disease once was a bigger killer for women, well, obviously for men still, but for women than it is now. Now it is dementia. But once upon a time, it was cardiovascular disease. The point I'm making is that it doesn't hold true to say that um dementia is getting better as women become cognizant of the fact that they can look after themselves uh i i i i i there we're gonna have to be to say that's one of the one or two or three things that we disagree about, but anyhow, your question then your most recent question was to do with the question uh first of all whether we call it hormone replacement or hormone therapy, it's a mute point because there's no doubt that the level of hormone has declined. And therefore, when you put new hormone, you are replacing. So that's why the term replacement. But I agree that technology is important. I agree that we should be careful with how we use words. In fact, I wrote a little paper not so long ago uh, in which, which is called something like, it's all in the name of, it's all in the name, the importance of correct terminology in hormone replacement, because of course when we just talk about uh, hormone replacement therapy, we think in terms of replacing oestrogen and or testosterone, but actually hormone replacement therapy could refer to diabetes because we are replacing. Uh, insulin or to thyroxine because we are replacing uh, thyroxine in in, in uh, thyroid gland that's not producing thyroxine issue. So the term hormone uh, replacement therapy is really a very poor term uh, in terms of if we want to be accurate about uh, the use of language. But anyhow, do I think that So the term we should use is something that you and I should debate on a different day and come to some agreement about what it should be. But I think if we are going to be accurate, we should say estrogen replacement therapy or testosterone replacement therapy or combined estrogen estrogen testosterone replacement therapy. That would be very accurate and would be non-ambiguous in terms of what we're doing. And it would be replacement because we are implying that these in their natural situation these hormone levels have declined. I'll pause there.
0: Yeah. So um for the, for the dementia um I mean I'm 60 and I'm the one of the youngest of my generation in my family and many of them are in their late 70s and um so far no no, no one's actually got dementia whereas uh my mum was one of five daughters, and they all got dementia but anyway, um I don't think it's a replacement therapy because I don't think that uh, I think replacement is when it should be in the body, and after postmenopause, those hormones shouldn't be in our body, so that's not natural so that that for me is why I wouldn't replace them but but let's go back to the question so is hormone therapy? A drug. Are, are we giving women drugs?
1: Um, we are giving women a hormone and trying to mimic what some people, maybe not Joyce, but some people believe something is lacking or something has reduced in quantity culminating in a woman becoming symptomatic. So we give her a hormone to try and resolve that problem. Is that a drug? Well it depends on how you want to define a drug. I I just say we are replacing a hormone or we are giving a hormone. And I'm I I don't know whether I want to think of it as is it a drug in the sense of giving paracetamol? Probably not because the human body does not contain does not contain paracetamol 1, doesn't contain digoxin, doesn't contain uh, an anti-blood pressure tablet. But the natural, normal human body, at, at a certain point in time, contains this hormone. And we give this hormone to try and control symptoms. What Whether we classify it as a drug or not is, to my, to my way of thinking, immaterial. What do you think?
0: Um, I think it is a drug and I think it has side effects. And I think we have to be careful with the dose of those drugs and and when we use them. So I'm going to bring the dose up in a moment, but um, do you, do you, what, what symptoms would you use hormone therapy for? Should it be, I mean, if, if we're saying that the menopause is a disorder and that it's, A replacement to put the hormones back then theoretically all the menopause symptoms perimenopause symptoms should be cured by taking hormone therapy but in my view they're not
1: so So, okay you're saying which symptoms should be treated the symptoms that should be treated are the ones that the patient the woman uh, comes to you as a physician with seeking help so if a woman comes and says to me i'm suffering badly from hot flashes i'm sitting in an office among other people that i just feel extremely hot or i can't sleep at night because of my hot flashes and nice words or i can't engage in intimacy because it just feels so dry those are some of the symptoms i would treat i, I think that i don't have a problem at all there in terms of which ones um if a woman who is perimenopausal, postmenopausal, and we happen to be having a conversation, says, oh, I have this very mild thing, but I'm perfectly able to cope with, I wouldn't suggest any treatment.
0: So um th- there has been there's been a lot of controversy in in the UK about hormone therapy, such as um it, you know, having the impression from some that it, it should be given to all women and that they should be on it forever. And there's a definitely if you read in the media, a lot of fear of missing out with, with women feeling that if they're not on HRT, then they're doing something wrong. So I, I do think there's a lot of peer pressure. So even women without symptoms are requesting HRT. And and we, we sort of missed uh, the testosterone. Let's go back to the testosterone because Susan's done a huge amount of research on this and she was very clear last week in the podcast um, about the data that shows when and when it it would be useful and when it wouldn't. Um, And testosterone, again, women are being told that it's, it's going to give them lots of energy and almost be the elixir of life, as with hormone therapy. How do you feel about the use of testosterone?
1: I think it has a place in the right woman with the... Appropriate symptoms of lack. I think one of the big mistakes that are made by people when they talk about testosterone or androgens in general is that they forget that the process of decline of androgens or testosterone in women is somewhat different from the decline in estrogen, where simply a woman's reserve of eggs has been uh, completely uh, depleted. Testosterone is not quite the same way and it's not produced on similar basis. I do think it's a very important hormone in women. I do think that it is, um, um, although we don't necessarily fully understand how um, uh, it, it works and why it's there, but we do know where it is produced. We do know that the, female bodies are fused with androgen uh, uh, receptors, be it a woman's eyes, her breasts, her brain, her red blood cells, her genital tract, everywhere there they are, they are testosterone receptors. And it's not a, a nature making a mistake. Nature doesn't make that bad a mistake. So testosterone must be important. If not only in terms of how much is produced by the female body, but also in terms of the receptors for this hormone. Now, um who who should who should get hormone therapy? I want to just re-emphasize that I'm not saying, I certainly do not say every woman should be on hormone replacement or hormone therapy. And I think that uh, what's happening in the media is that there are enthusiasts on either side of the divide. There are those who are very pro-hormone therapy, and they talk about every woman being on hormone replacement or hormone therapy, and that it is the last, the elixir of life to, to, to take words from your mouth, And that's wrong. Nothing is ever absolute like that. But there are women who do need it and who benefit. On the other hand, to completely deny all women and just say, well, this is your mother put up with this and uh, you should too, and this is just, you know, what the hell do you need hormone for? uh, That too is wrong because there are women who suffer tremendously from the lack or the fall in the level of this hormone. To my way of thinking, the most important thing isn't actually about Giving the hormone or denying it. The most important thing is helping women to understand what these hormones are about, to understand the normal biology, normal physiology of their bodies, to understand why they might get certain symptoms and why they may not, and therefore to help them, give them, to empower them to make decisions about their health. We mustn't deny them if they think there's something that's going to help them. We mustn't force them upon uh, women who don't want to have the uh, a hormones a hormone therapy. We mustn't make women feel that, oh, you know, if you're not taking it like Jane is taking it, you're missing out on something. No, no, no. Let us educate them to say, this is the choice that I'm making. And this is what works for me.
0: Oh, yes, course. we. we I, I think every woman's individual, and whenever I'm giving talks, you know, I say one problem we have is that if, you know, one person, for example, in an office is getting through the perimenopause quite easily, and then the next woman's having lots of problems, that second woman can feel very, um, you know, anxious and upset that, well, there's something wrong with her, you know, her friend didn't have any problem. So one important thing to educate women is that we are absolutely all individual. But I personally have never met anyone who is against hormone therapy for those that need it. I I I really have never met anyone. I in in my surveys I've done of women, some of the women said that their GP said, oh no, go away, you don't need it, which obviously is wrong. Um, but Mm -hmm. all the people that you know I've ever spoken to about this i've personally never met anyone who is against hrt um the ht i still keep saying hrt you know there are many people that try to promote a more natural way of dealing with the symptoms and the long-term uh risks of certain diseases but even they even they the very natural people are not against hormone therapy so um I I think, you know, my two messages are women are individual and hormone therapy is absolutely important for those that need it.
1: Uh, Joyce, there are people, I certainly have come across people who who are completely against hormone therapy. Uh, You know, they may not be a huge number, but they are there. And especially when they are in the healthcare profession, like when they are general practitioners, um, these have a huge impact on on women. And um, I certainly have come across women who've come to see me about hormone therapy, uh, where their GP has said, you know, go away, Uh, go and do what your mother did, which is just to put up with it. This is not at all, even in 2023, it's not entirely uncommon. There are people who are against hormone therapy. We but definitely, also, there are, people who, there are people who believe that everybody should be on it. Again, I think they, they are as muddled and 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 misguided as the other extreme. But then all extreme positions are usually misguided any.
0: I, so, I agree with you. And we, we need more education. We need more people to understand where we are. And I, I agree, the two extremes are, are really not... Um, they're not helping anybody, and and in that light, we've heard a lot in the media recently uh, about some women being given really high doses of h of hormone therapy, three times, four <laughs> times, and much more of these of these high doses, and um, there's there's you know talks about the harm that's happened, such as um, I've heard several people say they're seeing women with endometrial cancer. So how do you feel about, um, you know, if hormone therapy in the licensed doses is not working, oh, we'll just give more and more and more, which in and also for me may be masking other conditions. There are other, con- other reasons why even women could get hot flushes. So how do you feel about giving these unlicensed um, high doses of hormone therapy? Is that safe?
1: Well, um... First of all, let's be very clear. The The fact of giving a particular dose, especially now that we give things through the skin, doesn't mean that you are achieving the dose in the system that you are hoping to achieve. So if a woman is not responding to the standard dose that you are giving, the appropriate thing is to assess how much is getting into her system. And if, despite uh, despite achieving certain levels, and there's no other underlying condition, um, there are women who will require a higher dose than Susan and Jane, because that is just in the nature of biological variation. What is important is to be cognizant of the fact that this particular woman that requires the higher dose than standard needs to be kept under surveillance so that you can see, number one, do you need to continue giving her the high dose? For how long do you need to continue giving her the high dose? What protection are you providing to minimize the risk of endometrial cancer? You you can achieve that in terms of protecting her but also controlling her symptoms uh, but it is important to recognize that such a woman requires that added surveillance so that you can be sure of the actual levels that you are achieving in her system so that you can be sure that you are giving her the protection that she needs so I'm not I'm saying in other words um, we can't, uh, and I agree with you that you must make sure that there are no other underlying conditions that you are masking. Um, but by and large, when a woman is not responding to standard uh, doses, uh, often we do look, or one should look, to make sure that you're not missing anything that is relevant or important in in her in her health.
0: Have you and, seen a rise?
1: So I, I would, if I seen a rise in.
0: Uh, Endometrial cancer. Remember women
1: getting high doses?
0: Uh, No, endometrial cancer.
1: Uh, Actually, if anything, the actual level of endometrial cancer is actually on the full rather than on the rise. Why? Because the use of the Mirena coil actually is a very, very positive thing in terms of prevention of endometrial cancer. And... uh, In a situation particularly where you're going to need to protect a woman who needs higher levels, it's going to be very important to um, be clear as to what measures you're taking to minimize the risk. The mistake that is also being made is, to my way of thinking, is that um, we think that, you know, this dose... Results in this level of endometrial cancer that is not true. The data for that is not there. Yes, an opos is a risk factor for endometrial cancer, but probably the vast majority of uh, women with endometrial cancer do not present because of their being on HRT.
0: So, I've I've also heard that some women um, on their they, their very first dose of of hormone therapy has been two or three times the recommended licensed dose. Does, does that happen?
1: Is that rumours? Well, it, it, it can happen uh, depending on who is. Uh, uh, on average, the standard doses are very clear. They are well known. And uh, without a good reason, I would not recommend or suggest that we should be starting on doses that are two or three times or higher. Um, in, if anything, you're probably better off starting at a lower dose and building up. Because if a woman will respond to the lowest dose that does the trick, why not? But that do I see a lot of women who are started on high doses? No, the answer is not. Uh, 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 Joyce, I I have to ask the question: Why would somebody start on a dose that's three times higher um, for a woman presenting for the first time when there is established when there are established standard doses? Do do
0: you know um, the answer? To I I have no idea, but that's what we've we've heard, and we've heard that in some clinics it's routine to give way above the licensed dose, and there's a lot. I mean, Paula Paula Briggs from the the chair of the British Menopause has put many reports out. Um, there's been many um, position statements and comments about the the worry about some doctors prescribing very high doses, because in in my view as a scientist, we have not done the research on what the effects of these high doses will be. So we have no idea what the side effects or short or long-term issues may be to women. So I, I very much feel that they're being used as guinea pigs because we don't know what these unlicensed doses of drugs will well, I- actually do to them.
1: guinea pigs in research or guinea pigs as what i am not sure Well, in
0: the clinic if if there's no research being done about the high doses and i asked susan about it and she's quite horrified that she's hearing reports of the the doses that some people have given in the uk um it would she said it would never happen in australia but they have to work within the guidance um for use of that drug Mm. um and so um you know there there has been all this media attention about you know if it doesn't work we'll just give more and more and more well if it doesn't work maybe we're not treating the right problem and the fact that we don't know what three four five times the dose of hormone therapy would do to a woman short or long term because no one's ever done it um i'm hearing from you know the British Menopause Society etc that this is something that they feel is not right so it's it's a, a concern to me well, that I, 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 me I
1: couldn't agree more that we should not start women off on high doses when the, when we first encounter them because the vast majority will respond to the standard doses that everybody uses and I'm pretty sure um, that most menopause specialists would take that approach. Now, there are women who fail to respond to the standard doses. I would have said the logical thing is to ensure by doing simple blood tests, what levels of hormone, your serum levels of hormone you are achieving by what you are giving. And when you go up to the next level, again, you repeat your measurements and you repeat your measurements until you, you You should always understand what doses you are dealing with. Now, con- there is a condition uh, called tachyphylaxis, which is usually seen when we use implants rather than um, transdermal pack, uh, creams or patches, where you give the standard dose of implants, and... When you need to replace them six months later, if you do your blood tests, the levels are still high, but the women are symptomatic. The next time, they need them at four months. The next time, they need them at three months. The next time, they need them at two months, and so forth. And yet, if you measure blood levels of estrogen, their levels are very high. This condition is called tachyphylaxis. Nobody understands exactly how why it develops, but really, in such women, the, the answer is not to keep giving higher end, uh, uh, the, the, the implants more, more and more um, uh, shorter durations because that would be completely inappropriate. In the same way, if a woman is requiring uh, high doses, it is important to measure the levels. Why? Because different parts of the body do not allow absorption of the hormone as well as other parts. So you do need to know what levels you're dealing with, and therefore what level uh, uh, a given woman responds to. So if you find that, you, actually, her serum levels are high, uh, the the uh, once you've established what it is she needs, the other question then becomes, what am I doing to protect this woman to the known potential risks such as endometrial cancer? And I'll be saying, well, okay, we need to make sure that she is on an appropriate progestogen. But again, nobody knows 100% what the progestogen should be in terms of dose and so forth. Personally, I would have said use of the Mirena coil is one of the best things you can do. And if you're still concerned, despite surveillance, you can add uh, uh, progestogen to kind of counteract the amount. But nobody knows how much progestogen you should actually be using. But we do know that the Mirena is effective. We do know that good doses of the uh uterogen is effective. So these are these these are conditions that one should consider as unique and requiring more surveillance than other conditions and other uh, to patients that you're treating. And, and in any one of the things about um, hormone replacement, oh, sorry, about hormone therapy. One of the situations is the huge controversy that uh, exists and the poverty of knowledge, the poor quality of research. So allow me to go back to testosterone for a little bit and just point out really how easy it should be and will be, uh, can be, to conduct research beyond what we do know now Susan would have said to you the one thing we know for sure is that testosterone should be given to women with low libido and that in these women it's effective but we have no evidence for anything else isn't that what she said to you uh,
0: not quite not quite actually Um she, it was much more oh, okay. specific. It was much more specific than that, and and I I appreciate there are gaps in our research, but Susan is the one, and I know there's some studies at at uh, my university hospital as well that are being done. Um, but it it just just worries me that women are being sold that this is you know hormone therapy with the testosterone is going to make them feel energetic and youthful and all these things. And I just feel that that's really not true.
1: And um, I
0: think, I think, I I, I, I think I, think, yeah.
1: I think selling it like that is not quite correct. But I do think that there are women with certain symptoms who do benefit. And for them, it really should be offered as an option if having given them Uh, oestrogen on its own, they remain very symptomatic. So some women will tell you that, hey, my hot flashes are gone. Hey, I no longer have problems with sleep. There's no vaginal dryness, but I have no libido whatsoever. And they benefit from uh, testosterone. Some women say, I have the most profound brain fog. Uh, the, The research needs to be done. But you put them on testosterone and their brain fog, lifts quite significantly. But here's my point. My point is this that if we say and I agree there has not been a systematic piece of research on brain fog and testosterone, actually it is very easy to do the piece of research and I just I tear hair that I don't have, thinking why is it not being done? Because the design of such a research piece of research is so simple. The randomization is very straightforward. The crossover, the washout periods are very straightforward. The crossovers are very straightforward. Ah, we could get these answers in a very short space of time. And I I despair that we can't do such simple things. I, I want us to
0: finish off now on our menopause discussion. So we just have a last few questions, the, the little bit of the fun questions. But just to say, um, you mentioned about testosterone receptors everywhere. We, I mean we also have opiate receptors everywhere in our body um, but you know we shouldn't all be taking opiates so I, I think I think <laughs> you know we have to be careful with the science and the clinical parts and um, you know there's lots of things but that we might don't do produce opiates that.
1: in our body yeah. but we don't produce yeah. opiates in the way that we produce testosterone
0: no exactly exactly um, but, <laughs> so, but sorry my other last problem with how we're treating the menopause is that we have given women that have no symptoms at all. The view that they're going to have fear of missing out if they don't take hormone therapy, which I think is really incorrect. Um, but, but I want I want us just to move on now to the last few questions, which are more fun questions. So um, you've probably heard many women in their, uh, consultations with you say well why didn't anyone tell me this before and this is the title of the podcast so what what was probably the main thing that women said to you why didn't anyone tell me this what right. didn't they know
1: a number of things a lot of um symptoms um you might think this is strange but many women hadn't realized that their muscle aches and pains were related to their menopause and they come back Maybe three months review or something like that, having taken hormone therapy. And they say, My God, my aches and pains are gone. Oh, didn't you know they were? Oh, no, I didn't. You see, so they, a very important symptom that they hadn't realized was linked. And some women don't also realize that the so called genitourinary syndrome of the menopause. Where they need to pee very frequently, there's just this kind of funny feeling down below. Um, Bowels may be affected, Uh, is related to the menopause. And and they're very easy to treat. When it comes there, she doesn't want hormone, but she's bothered by these symptoms. You give her a little bit of local estrogen cream or tablets, the Vagifem, and they get so much better. I said, but. Why didn't anyone tell me what's going on with my body? So there are many of these sort of symptoms that are menopause-related or that are perimenopause-related that women, nobody has told them that they are indeed due to this condition. No, not condition, uh, because that implies disease. This change in their life.
0: Yeah, and... and yeah i for for me what you said is exactly true and this is why education of everyone about the symptoms is the starting point we do the symptoms treatment Absolutely. options yeah you know, that we totally agree so we've we've agreed and we've disagreed so we we're, we're doing well isaac we're doing well um just a couple <laughs> more questions <laughs> a couple more questions okay. what, what what motivates you you've worked so hard in this field to help women um, what motivates you to keep going?
1: Oh, but it's it's fun as well, and isn't it great fun to find that somebody has debilitating symptoms, and you work with her, and she gets better and walks out a very happy lady walking uh, away. I'll tell you this morning. I get, I open my email and I have had a young patient. When she first came to see me, she was very young and she had severe polycystic ovarian syndrome, which was affecting her skin a lot. And I treated her with something that is not usually given as standard, but I treated her with androcur and it stopped her periods but made her skin beautiful. And this young lady actually then went on to go to medical school. Not only did she go into medical school, but she became a trainee in opus and gyne. And then recently, after several years, we took her off the androker because she got married and she was very keen to start a baby straight Which She was, of course, very worried about the fact that she had PCOS before. And um, fortunately, she... She felt pregnant, but unfortunately she miscarried. And then she tried again, and she felt pregnant. She just sent me an email that I got this morning saying, uh, I just want to let you know that uh, on the 14th of September, we welcomed Theo into the world. And she sent me pictures of her with little baby Theo. And I was, uh, that, that, that's, that's great, and it makes me happy. And that motivates me. But, you know, it, it, even if it's one person who is happy, but uh, it's the good things that many are happy, if you do the best you can.
0: That's a beautiful segue into one of the next questions. So maybe don't think about work. Maybe think, we'd like to know a bit about Isaac. So. In your in your private life, are there what 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 do you do to make yourself happy? And where is your happy
1: place? <laughs> <laughs> so
0: not work, not work. Like, so
1: no,
0: that work. would
1: be that would be those are secrets. Those are s- secrets. No, I mean it's a whole uh, range of things. Um, I read a lot. I I I love reading. I love traveling. Um, my other half and I travel a lot. And now that I'm retired, we're going to be able to do this a lot more. And um, hopefully we will do certain things like um, um, she's very keen on to learn to do beekeeping. And I'm curious about it. And these are some of the things that we will look into developing and learning and and new things. So that is what we will do in the private side of things.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Do you you have a special place, a happy place, maybe somewhere specific or not so specific?
1: You mean a a physical place? I'll tell you one place that I really will go and go and go again. I love Cape Town. Cape Mm. Town in South Africa there is a particular hotel there and there's a particular area there and there's the the wine routes uh, out of main Cape Town. Uh, you can, if you go at the right time of the year so that it's nice and warm, not in the winter because it gets very cold, but you go in the summer, it's nice and warm. The food is wonderful. You stay by the waterfront. Uh, the food in the uh, restaurants there is wonderful. You can do Trips into the wine farms where you can do a lot of tasting and then purchasing the occasional bottle here and there. And um, so that's one of my special places to go to. That sounds absolutely
0: fantastic. <laughs> and my very last question to you is what advice would you give the young Isaac? So, if with all your wisdom now through your life, what would you say to yourself if you could have given yourself a message when you were younger? What advice would you give your younger self?
1: Oh. That's a difficult one to be honest. <laughs> um in other words you're saying what would I do differently? And um, well, I'll tell you some things that um, are different. Uh, that I, sorry, that I would do differently. When I was doing what then would have been O levels, because they don't call them O levels now, um, I, I was very good at maths, and I was given the opportunity of doing extra maths. And in the holidays that we were given, we were supposed to cut. We're given some two textbooks during which we we're supposed to work through these during our holidays. I went off on holiday. I didn't want to do any maths during on holiday. And when I came back, I hadn't done anything. And my two friends, who were, as you know, at that age, you're very competitive, had done theirs. And there were streets ahead of me. And I always regretted that because okay. it kind of put me at such a disadvantage. And it's always stayed in my head that I never should have done, not done what I was supposed to do. So what it means, what it meant was that um if I was still, if you get an opportunity to do something that doesn't cost you too much. I mean, this would have cost me a holiday and it didn't matter too much. But but you know, don't lose that opportunity because it has such major implications in your life. I, I may in the, and if I had done like maths and done physics, I might have done, I might have pursued a different course. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and uh, in terms of most other things, I don't feel as if I have or should could have told myself too many different things. In terms of doing things in a different way. So I'm comfortable with where I am.
0: Very good answer. So, Isaac, it's been a real pleasure. It's great to have had a little bit of professional uh, disagreement. Um, It's, you know, I absolutely respect your views and and we're not always the same, but that's healthy. Um, It's been a real pleasure talking to you. So, thank you very much for coming on today.
1: Joyce, I, I thank you, thank you for inviting me. But I, I don't think we had much in the way of uh, disagreements. I, I think we may have expressed a few things uh, in slightly different ways. But I certainly, I thought we were going to have a lot more <laughs> disagreements than we did have. But uh, there you are. I hope the audience will appreciate the. Uh, the, the differences that we've had. Thank you very much.